Would you like to live a happier, healthier, and more fulfilled life? Cultures from all over our planet have been addressing that concern for thousands of years, and their answers can help you in your life today. Welcome to The Sweet Spot, where healing, spirituality, and culture meet. Join anthropologist and healer Robert Better as he introduces you to healing and spirituality in world cultures. Here's the host of your show, Robert Better. Hi, everybody. It's Bob Vetter here. Before we get started, and just in case you have to get off this podcast early, if you'd like to get underway with your own healing and clear away any energetic blockages, you can get on a free call with me. Go to HealWithBob.com. Welcome to all my friends in this podcast listening audience. I'm back here today for part two with John Prendergast. And in part one, John took us along for his own personal journey of spiritual awakening. And we talked about his trip to India. We talked about his becoming a psychotherapist and this weaving together of spiritual traditions with psychological understanding. So welcome back for part two, John. Glad to have you here. Thank you very much. So today I was hoping that we might look at some of the particular teachers that you've had along the way to talk about what you learned from them, what your inspiration was, and how you came to use some of those teachings and that information that you got from them. Okay, I'd be happy to. It's, uh, it's kind of a long list. So uh, I'll just briefly mention a few kind of, I would say, preliminary or introductory teachers. One was Maharishi Mahajyogi. I learned um, Transcendental Meditation. Uh, from him, and I was briefly a TM teacher. I never felt him as my teacher, but I did. I was introduced to mantra meditation and some of the core principles of Vedanta from him, and and for that I'm appreciative. Um, I then spent some time with uh, Satya Sai Baba uh, in India. Um, I spent time at his ashram and um, studied his teachings, which I would I would call more devotional and traditional Hindu. Um, and that was like in the late 70s into the early 80s. Um, <clears throat> again, I'm influential as I was speaking in the last time in terms of developing both kind of an opening of the heart and sensitivity to of the body. I'll talk more about that. And then I, um, I had a very, um, a very, very influential dream, a lucid dream actually, in the fall of 1981 of this sage in uh, Bombay, Mumbai, and um, uh, it was as real as you and I speaking. Uh, I didn't know who he was, but he had these beautiful eyes. They were like luminous, you know, and he, he said, um, he was in a kind of very modest apartment looking through the window and he said, telepathically, will you be my translator? You know, and I said, oh my goodness. I, <laughs> it's so kind of funny as I talk about this now. I said, I don't know how to speak your language, but somehow I was understanding him. And he said, I know you're a student of Sai Baba's, but you can spend some time with me. And um, I asked my housemate who'd just been back from India, what's the name of that sage you visited in India? And he said, oh, Nisargadatta Maharaj. So this happened a month before he died, um, uh, Nisargadatta died. But I read his book, I Am That. And that was really pivotal for me um, because in that was the teaching, you are what you're looking for. The seeker is what is being sought. And when I read that, it just rang so true. 
and it really shifted my attention away from my sort of devotional um, kind of attention uh, really to investigating the nature of the self. Um, so that was in 81. And then in 83, um, there was a European um, spiritual teacher who visited the Bay Area named Jean Klein. And uh, the first time I met him in Sausalito, which is just north of San Francisco, I walked into the room. I didn't see him, but the quality of silence, vibrant, alive silence was so striking, I stopped thinking, which was quite unusual. <laughs> in my case, being a thinking type. And I just noticed that. It's like, wow, there is presence in this room. And I just felt an immediate and profound resonance with him and felt like, ah, this is my teacher. I finally met my teacher. So um, I studied with Jean, mostly in California. Uh, he would spend maybe four months a year in California. He lived in France, mostly, uh, also a bit in Switzerland. Um, but I studied with him from 83 until 95 when he retired from teaching. Um, and it had a profound influence on me. I, I read his books, I attended his talks, I went to his retreats. And it just, there was just such a clarity and, and presence about him, um, such a deep resonance, I would say, um, that I just felt a, great, a growing intimacy what I would call my true nature. And there were several profound glimpses uh, during my time with Jean, uh, where really the sense of being a separate self fell away. And, and I knew myself as infinite awareness. And those made a profound impact on me. And this was his basic teaching. You know, it was basically really deeply listen. Not, it's not using effort, but a deep listening, deep attuning, um, and opening to the nature of awareness itself. And that was beginning to happen uh, more with him. And then he, um, he passed away in 98, and I thought I was done with teachers. You know, it was just a matter of kind of sitting with what had been given to me. And a year later, I met Ajay Shanti, who's a young Californian teacher who came out of the Zen tradition, heard a talk by him, and I felt the same presence as I did with Jean. And two years later, I went on a retreat with him and had a very powerful opening that I talk about in my book, um, just a sense of being, again, that infinite awareness opening up. And this time, uh, it stayed open um, with him. It was a kind of what we might call a mental awakening. I could no longer really identify with my story, with my individual thoughts and beliefs, you know, as a separate self. So I studied with Adya um, intensively from 2001 to 2006, went to a lot of his retreats. And um, that, that, that we could say opening or awakening deepened into the heart and the hara. Um, and at some point I realized, oh, I'm done here. You know, this is completed. That was quite surprising to me. I, I didn't anticipate that. So I stopped going, you know, to his retreats and his talks. We've remained in contact now and then friendly contact. Um, so that's kind of my, you know, I, I spent a little time with Amachi also uh, when she first came to the U.S. in kind of mid to late 80s, Mata Amrita Nanda Mai, and that was more kind of divine mother connection, and uh, that was sweet and, and heartfelt. So that's kind of the, the story with, um, with my teachers, and I think with Ajay Shanti, the main takeaway was 
uh, he just developed, he continued what Jean Klein was teaching and it was more about not just awakening to true nature, but embodying it in your ordinary life uh, and closing the gap, you know, between that sense of infinite awareness and, and your daily life. So I was very, um, very struck by that. That would be maybe a good theme for us to, to re-examine on in terms of how can the listeners make sense of, of what you're describing in their lives? What's, what's the takeaway from this? I'm sitting with your question. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to go to the, quickly, too quickly to the mind for an answer. I would say it's to, to know that there is, that you have an essential nature. I'm speaking to your listeners right now. That is prior to any thought and any belief and any story and its attendant feelings and sensations. In other words, there is, we, we do have a true nature that is unbounded, uh, open, um, unconfined, uh, and also loving. So at the core of our being is this wakeful, loving awareness. And we have glimpses of it. You know, we, we feel it from time to time when we're in nature or with a loved one, or we may be drumming or, you know, involved in some kind of shamanic practice. And it's like the doors of perception open and we feel ourselves mm -hmm. connected to the whole of life. So, you know, we are, I, I think, as I speak, I think the main message is that we are inherently whole, you know, because in terms of healing, there are many levels of healing, but fundamentally we are whole regardless of our conditioning. Uh, and limitations. And the more that that's, it's not something we have to create with the mind. It's not something we actually have to work on. It's actually a matter of attuning to that. And that requires a shift of attention, generally out of the conditioned mind, deep into the body, and ultimately, um, you know, into, um, into openness. And, you know, I wrote the book, The Deep Heart, because the heart is a portal, I find, um, probably the easiest, uh, easiest, the most accessible portal to this essential nature. And we can then, by actually deepening, deepening our attention in the heart, dropping it from the head into the heart and deepening it, we can have a sense of our natural inherent wholeness. And, and as we attune with that, we can welcome our conditioning. And, and that really is an, creates an optimal field for psychological healing, emotional healing and, and cognitive healing or, or core limiting beliefs. So, I think that's where the rubber hits the road is when we're, we start getting in touch with these constrictions emotionally and somatically and our core limiting beliefs. And we begin to welcome them um, into our presence, this, this field of awake, aware, loving awareness. And they tend to unwind and we can also kind of uh, investigate them with more clarity and curiosity and affection. So let's, let's talk about that for a moment. Um, so if we, if this perfection is who and what we are. I prefer the word completeness. <laughs> okay. So, so let's say completeness, wholeness. What, mm -hmm. uh, if that is our true nature, mm -hmm. what is it that stands in our way? Well, the traditional answer is ignorance. In other words, lack, really lack of um, conscious understanding of that. And we misidentify fundamentally. We, we take ourselves to be something that we're not. And we tend to misidentify with our thinking, uh, particularly our core negative beliefs, 
and the feelings and sensations that go with it. And we say, that's who I am. You know, that's who I really am, an unworthy, flawed, limited, separate self. And then we operate from that, as most people do. You know, and then we compensate for it and try to prove uh, that, that we're you know, something else and disprove that we're really lacking or flawed in some way. So it takes a deep investigation to look into that from you know, a place of deeper knowing. So it's a very quiet uh, kind of, you know, it's that small, still voice within that's uh, referenced in the Bible. Um, there is an inner wisdom, a heart wisdom that we all have, but it's quiet. And it's not assertive. It doesn't argue with us. It doesn't judge. So it's, it's so quiet that we often overlook it. So it's a matter of actually attunement, of knowing it's there, beginning to listen and attune with that. So I, I guess my question is this. If we go back to something that you said in our last interview, it was that, uh, that I went to India to find out that I didn't really have to go anywhere to find myself. Mm-hmm. So the irony of the question, though, is that India is a place where that thought, just the mere idea that it's possible to do that, is a dominant thought, as mm-hmm. opposed to our mainstream American society, which is exactly the opposite. Very that true. I've got to fight harder. I've got to do more. I've got to learn more. Right. Struggle. more in order to fulfill my own potential. This is so true. It's a beautiful point. So this is a, you know, I mean, India is becoming more westernized and more materialistic also as it becomes more middle class. Nonetheless, there's that, you know, there's an enduring and rich tradition which honors this deeper reality. And, you know, it was first being exposed to it through uh, books and then being there, you know, and being with in that atmosphere that really allowed the recognition that you're describing. So cultures are really important, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, exactly. They, they, this is your point. And they really influence, you know, how we think and how we feel, what kind of questions we ask, you know. Mm-hmm. We don't ask in the West, who am I really? You right. Know? In India, that's like a sacred question. Yeah. And uh, the, so the, second, the, the second irony to me is that, that, we go to, and I say we, because I'm speaking about myself, you, and many of our listeners, you know, we go to event after event. We go to retreat after retreat to find what it is that was already there. Yes. Yeah. And that's, yeah. That, that's ironic also. I mean, wouldn't you agree? It is. It is kind of ironic. In other words, we search, don't we? Mm-hmm. In, until we describe that, until we, until we discover that the one who is looking is what is being looked for. And this is the nature, I think, of the human mind, regardless of culture. Some cultures kind of support this inquiry uh, more directly and, and others less so. But yeah, it's like, I think one way or the other, we're all searching, you know, searching for some peace, some happiness, some sense of freedom. In the West, we tend to search via acquiring objects, more stuff, more status. And we believe if we get enough of that, you know, that we'll be happy. And we, we see it's completely untrue and that we're, you know, this is a totally unsustainable way of living. And uh, here in the midst of the smoke and fires of North Cal- North, Northern California, it's really obvious, but it's obvious everywhere. It's unsustainable on many levels. So, yeah, yeah, it's very true. 
And then part of the difficulty also is this difference of values. I mean, yes. I, I'm sure you experience it at some, at, at some times, and I, I do too, that here we are in a very materialistic society where our relationships matter, and yet the people that we interact with often have values that are diametrically opposed to the spiritual values that you and I have been talking about. It's true. It's true. And navigating that is very challenging, isn't it? And to not go into judging, you know, and not go into separation. But one of the interesting things I discovered, Bob, is like, as we're more intimate with this knowing within ourself, um, we naturally sense it in others, even if they're not aware of it themselves, you know. And it's like in the field, if you will. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that my, in my work with individuals, for instance, psychotherapy work, you know, I don't even have to talk about this. It's just like sitting in silence, something comes into the foreground that's unusual, you know, this kind of vibrant it's, silence. It's a ground of being. It's the ground of being, exactly. Beautifully said, it's the ground of being. And that then um, begins to influence the relationship. Of course, the other person needs to be available, you know, mm -hmm. and interested. If they're not, they probably won't notice, but right. you know, no, no harm, no harm done. But it's hard. It's hard to navigate more in this culture, which doesn't recognize this ground of being than in others. I, and I think you and I certainly understand that. I think probably anybody who would bother to listen to this podcast has a sense of that. And, and another, again, you know, I'm talking about ironies. The other irony is that the people who don't get that message, on some level, they're still searching. Yes. And there's something, I don't know, something inevitable about that. You know, it's like we have to search and come to certain dead ends in our search, realize this isn't it. This is not really fulfilling. And I think many of your listeners, you know, have gone through that process. And it's like we have to do that, it seems. We have to kind of exhaust these outer ways, you know, of looking for peace, happiness, and freedom, and connection, and communion. And then, you know, the search begins to turn inward. And then eventually we realize, oh, this awareness, which is looking, this is like the very center of it all, the very source of it all, you know, and in discovering that is not selfish at all. It's selfless. This is another irony, you know, it's like you turn attention inward and you discover yourself connected with everything and everyone. And that's beautiful. That's, that's the revelation of the deep heart, really, the awakening of the heart, the deepest dimension of the heart. Absolutely. And John, that's going to be a good note for us to end this section with. Uh, we have so much more to explore in part three. So John Prendergast, thank you again for being with us. It's been wonderful. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you're a very spiritual person who just needs a little help clearing away what's been holding you back, through some relatively quick healing techniques, get on my calendar for a free call. Go to HealWithBob.com. This has been Healing and Spirituality in World Cultures with Robert Vetter. Thanks for listening. Please rate, subscribe, and share with everyone you know who might benefit from these messages. Until next time, remember, be kind and loving to yourself and others. Together, we can heal ourselves and help build a better world. <laughs>